You are listening to a conservative review production. Trust, but verify. You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. And along with co-host Joe Koss, they break down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. Welcome back to The Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz. And we got a special broadcast for you today. Today is June 6th, Monday, 72, 72nd anniversary of D-Day. Um, you know, I, I we've been talking about fundamental transformation, the lack of Republican Party to stand up to that fundamental transformation on a weekly basis. And I know I apologized last week for not putting out a, a podcast. We've had some technical difficulties here with uh, our Obamacare-style apparatus. Uh, my com- my computer here has had problems, but you know I'd like to focus this week on what we're finding the fundamental transformation throughout the world, the transformation of our military, of our global strategic interest, interest, our national interests, and you know for for really two reasons: a because of D Day, the seventy second anniversary, and b because Congress is considering the. Defense authorization bill. The Senate's bringing it to the floor, and there's a lot of issues that should be discussed. But of course, you know, no one in the media is discussing that. It's all about Trump's latest comments about this, his latest comments about that, the razzle dazzle. But as always, a conservative review, and you know, what you hear at Mark Levin, LevinTV.com. Make sure you register, sign up there. Um, we focus on the stories that other people don't, and you know, you, you you look at D-Day in totality, and, and you see a nation with united resolve, a nation that stormed the beaches of of France, Omaha Beach in particular. Um, you know they were seasick, choppy waters. It was cold, bad weather. They were shot at already in the water, um, and they had poor intel. Didn't realize they had the machine guns up there, just gunning them down. We took about twenty five hundred fatalities at at uh, Normandy, mostly at Omaha Beach. And it, it's pretty surreal. You look at the cemetery there at, at Normandy and, um, you know, you recognize, wow, what, what a solemn sacrifice that was. But on the other hand, you, you understand that that sacrifice led to something. It, 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 that, that was the pinnacle of, of American power, um, and not for a negative sense, you know, projection of power to, to subjugate others, but to free a world free a continent and by extension free a world, you contrast that to what we have nowadays. We, we've been at war for 15 years, particularly Iraq and Afghanistan, but really in other places as well. We've had about 7,000 fatalities, tens of thousands um, just wounded, many of them gravely for the rest of their lives, so many with PTSD, our soldiers placed into meat grinders, tepid rules of engagement, no clear mission, and what the hell have we gotten for it? It's it just the contrast from 72 years ago is 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 a, is just it's surreal and and we we often don't talk about it because as soon as we had a Democrat president the body count what was going on in Iraq and Afghanistan no longer mattered but the reality is is we are there we're still there we're still there without a mission our guys are still getting killed for what what are we doing there 
you know, recently I put out an article about our guys, mainly special ops on the ground in Iraq, serving for Iranian Shiite militias, the very same people who blew up our our soldiers you know, to the tune of up to uh, probably 1,100 fatalities because of them. And where is the guidance? Where is the outrage? Where is Congress? You know, with us today, I have a special guest to, to navigate us through these tough waters, some of these stories a lot of people aren't talking about. Dear friend of mine, Patrick Poole, sometimes you hear us together on with Sean Hannity whenever we discuss national security, immigration-related stuff as well. And, um, you know, he's he is the senior correspondent, national security correspondent for PJ Media, wealth of experience in military and foreign affairs. It's my honor to bring in Patrick Poole. Hey, Patrick, how are you today? Get along, and uh, it's it's good to remember uh, the sacrifice that uh, those who came before us made. No, it really is. You know, I had my my grandfather um, was at Utah Beach, not at Omaha Beach, um, and I, I believe my great uncle was at Omaha Beach. And you know, we all have have our relatives, and and you just I don't know. Um, I look, Patrick. I understand that we live in a different era. The enemy is not as defined. I mean, it is defined, but it's not as militarily and strategically confined and defined. The victory is going to look a little different. But am I missing something? You know, certainly I don't want to cast aspersions on on, on what our soldiers have done because they've done everything they can do given what is what, what they've been dealt with. But what have we gotten after 15 years, I'm seeing in Iraq, and, and we'll kind of go round robin, we'll go talk about Iraq, Afghanistan, we'll talk about Africa. Um, but, you know, in Iraq, we had Saddam Hussein, who was a terrible guy, who was violating the terms of surrender. But, you know, now we have half of Iraq is controlled by Iran, half of it's controlled by ISIS. After, you know, about 4,500 fatalities there, tens of thousands of our guys killed, over a billion, over a trillion dollars spent. Um, Afghanistan, we're still there. What is going on? What have we gotten for for our sacrifice? Well, we've gotten uh, uh, more jihad and terror is what we've <laughs> uh, got. And, uh, you know, I, I think you, you mentioned the fact that, uh, um, you know, in World War II, uh, we had clear defined um, enemies. You know, they were nation states. Um, and, and in this case, you looking back from 9-11 forward, uh, you know, clearly 9-11 was a defining event. And whether it's Republicans during the Bush administration or Democrats in the Obama administration, uh, every effort has been made to not define um, the nature of this threat. In fact, I remember uh, an interview that... Um, uh, Fareed Zakaria did with um, Donald Rumsfeld and asked him, you know, well, what's one of your biggest regrets? And Rumsfeld said, you yeah, know, we, we never defined the enemy. So how, how do you tell good guys from bad guys? You know, um, how do you engage in targeting? So, I mean, we're, we're clear. I, I mean, in Iraq and Syria, there are um, positive efforts being made to to limit and, and take away territory from, from the Islamic State. Um, but, but what exactly is the end game? I mean, now that we've, uh, if we completely eradicate 
ISIS in terms of holding territory in Syria and Iraq, we still have tens of thousands of these foreign fighters uh, who fought with ISIS um, who, who were returning to their countries. I mean, uh, here in the United States, we've had the FBI director, Comey, uh, say that uh, there have been dozens of these guys, uh, American citizens or green card holders, uh, who've, who've returned. We, we, we know of about uh, 200 Americans who've gone to fight with ISIS, and, and about 40 to 50 have returned. Um, and and the, the scope of the problem of these foreign fighters is going to be a, a Western terrorism nightmare for the next two generations. It, it, it's and, unbelievable. And nobody's really talking about it. Well, I, this is what I can't figure out. You know, it, during World War II, we just we, we did not compromise with our homeland security. We didn't tolerate you. Know, we caught Nazi infiltrations. We'd hang them. Um, and then, you know, we went over overseas, both oceans, and we fought with everything we had. We, you know, this is George Patton. Let the other SOB die for his country. Um, and we won. I mean, in this case, we're doing the opposite. So, you know, and we'll put this in our show notes. I have a post out this morning about, you know, more numbers about Islamic immigration from the Middle East, just metastasizing, not just after 9-11, but particularly the last couple of years and, you know, Arabic is the fastest growing language in our country now that the census is going to uh, fill out, uh, put out their questionnaires in Arabic. And they're trying to figure out how to do that for the 2012 census, 2020 sentence, census. And uh, I, I'm just thinking we have it backwards. So we bring the, the, the whole impetus for going to war in Iraq and Afghanistan is, well, you don't want to bring them here. But we bring them here. We, we bring them through our front door, through immigration, and also through the wars, um, you know, the Senate is, is going to debate this week an amendment to the NDAA to bring in another 4,000 um, immigrants from Afghanistan that supposedly helped us. And I understand some of them do legitimately help us as translators, but a lot of them have turned out to be problematic. We, we've brought in about 150,000 refugees from Iraq since uh, 2007. I, I'm not sure what, what are we getting from there aside from bringing the problem to our shores and and then the second question, Patrick, is, you know, again, you look at World War II, you had a Western civilization that was taken over by fascism. So it was a matter of getting our guys in there. They made the sacrifice, and then you return that. You fill that. You, there's land to be held, land to be taken. You fill that land with what was there before. The, the problem, I, and I get this from a lot of people, they're looking for guidance, and, you know, certainly Obama has his problems. He downright sides with Iran and its proxies. He, he, he has our guys fight for our own enemies, um, and he doesn't want to destroy many of our enemies because he believes you know, the Muslim Brotherhood and now even al-Qaeda are, are allies to a certain extent. But you know, let's say we did get a Republican president in who didn't follow in the path of Obama. He didn't follow in the ways of Bush's second term. They wanted to utterly destroy our enemy. But strategically, so uh, you destroy the Taliban in Afghanistan. You destroy Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. The question everyone asks is, then what? Um, aren't the sacrifices of our guys just filled in again by whatever fills that vacuum? Because these are disparate Islamic tribes in these various areas that don't have the um, – qualities of a nation state what do we fill it with so we don't keep doing this and and stay there for 50 years 
Well, I, I'm not sure that uh, you can really um, sufficiently deal with a problem and not be there for 50 years. I mean, in the case of Afghanistan, I mean, we took the battle to the Taliban. Well, now the Taliban's resurgent. Um, you know, I was just watching the, the PBS program on um, the roots of, of the Islamic State, uh, which aired here about two weeks ago. And uh, at the end of the Bush administration, the Islamic State in Iraq, Zarqawi's old group, had been uh, whittled down to about 30 members. Um, and then Obama came into office, and now there, you know, there are tens of thousands of them. So, I mean, we've not even eliminated these threats yet. But to get to your question about, you know, what's the end game? Well, you know, in order to get to an end game, which is peace and protection for the American people, is we've got to start to deal with the infrastructure. And I think this is one of the problems that since 9-11 um, is we've got to deal with the infrastructure that allows these groups to, to arise and thrive. You know, we have to recognize that ISIS is an instrument of the foreign policy of the states of Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait. Mm. I, I mean, that's, um, ISIS would not exist. If it, and, and people, well, you know, uh, is there actual state support? Well, I mean, in these countries, you have the sheikh, you have some billionaire prince, uh, he may he may not be defense minister, but is he part of uh, part of the government? He's part of the kingdom. You know? um, it's just, and and this is the problem. We in the failing to define the threat, we we can't determine. We can't separate the good guys from the bad guys. Um, and, and and Patrick, isn't this what we started to see right after nine eleven with Bush's first term that he did have that moral clarity, and we saw some success with that. Oh, yes. And, and I mean, um, after 9-11, the Bush administration took considerable efforts to uh, shut down a bunch of the uh, Islamic charities. I mean, virtually all of, I, I mean, virtually all of these Islamic charities uh, were supporting terrorism in one form or another, and the Bush administration went and shut them down. Well, but it took, you know, after a couple of years and the intervention of even some Republican uh, cough, cough, Grover Norquist, uh, to <laughs> shut down, uh, like Operation Green Quest. Uh, and in fact, Norquist took his Muslim buddies to meet with the Treasury Secretary to shut down Operation Green Quest. Um, and, and there was an article by, uh, Eli Lake in, uh, Bloomberg here a couple weeks ago where he talked about the fact that, uh, the prosecution of material support here in the United States has, uh, come to a standstill. I mean, it, it's, it just does. It's not happening uh, under the Obama administration. But then again, you know, the second term of Bush, as you were referring to, it, it kind of stops. So until we start to to look at the support infrastructure that uses these groups as a, as an instrument of national policy, in some cases, just like Iran and the IRGC and Hezbollah and. Um, uh, you know, in, in other cases, which historically for the United States have been much clearer, I mean, IRGC and some of these other um, Iranian uh, groups have been designated for, you know, going back to the Clinton administration, uh, rightly so. But that's never really happened 
um, with respect to a lot of these Sunni terrorist groups. That we know that these these states, we know that the Saudis, you know, there's been all this hubbubaloo recently about the 28 pages um, referring about Saudis' connection to the 9-11 terror attacks from the the Joint Congressional Inquiry. Um, and, and honestly, we kind of know everything that's in there. I mean, it's all been reported already about the, uh, the Saudi agents in Los Angeles who helped get the 9-11 hijackers established, the role of Anwar al um, You know, these things are already known. But uh, the, the Saudi influence in the, in not just influence, I mean, control of, uh, the terror financing network internationally uh, has never been addressed. I mean, the Saudis were given a complete pass. This is the same problem we see, too, with Pakistan uh, and the ISI. I mean, the Taliban in Afghanistan uh, is a creation of the Pakistani ISI, their intelligence service. Uh, this is not classified information I'm giving. And, 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 and there, is this, is this related no to, the, taken. to the Haqqani network that everyone talks about? Well, sure, yeah. Well, yeah, and then the Haqqani network and Lashkar-e-Taiba and a, a number of these terrorist groups are arms of the Pakistani ISI. Um, and again, I, I'm not, you know, in, I'm not disclosing classified information here. I mean, this is well known uh, that these groups are tied to the ISI. Yeah. And uh, yet, yet no action has really been taken uh, against the Pakistanis, um, even after 9-11, to, 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 to decrease this threat. So we have our so-called ally in the war on terror who are funding the very people who were killing Americans in Afghanistan. And then we send our guys in. See, th- th- this is what I don't understand. Um, you, you know, you picture a septic tank with all sorts of bad stuff in there. You know, snakes, scorpions, killer whales, sharks. And, you know, what we do is we do the most difficult and often most unachievable thing first. We'll send our guys just straight into the septic tank without a mission. And then, you know, you see outside of the tank them supplying it. And we could just easily just cut that off. It doesn't cost anything. Like you say, it doesn't cost any lives. We don't have to have our, our special ops on the ground doing dangerous stuff, constantly deployed for, for years doing this stuff. Um, you know, you could start by not supporting them, by not, by not funding them, by not allying with them. And then like you, like you mentioned back here at home with the Muslim brotherhood, we, you know, we've spoken about that a lot. Um, when, when you declare war on an enemy and you define it, um, then you could lay those parameters, and there's legal ramifications for that. There's, um, you know, if you commit treason, if you're if you're funding our enemy, um, if you're here domestically, we've got a problem with you. Internationally, we've got a problem with you. But we don't do that. But I, Patrick, I want to move on. I know we're we're running out of time. Um, one thing that particularly bothers me is I always say the only thing worse than not having a mission in the Middle East is having our troops there and not having a mission. It's widely thought, you know, a lot of people think, oh, we we pulled out of Iraq. Uh, We pretty much pulled out of Afghanistan. But isn't it true that we have thousands of special ops on the ground there? And Obama has used them in a way that, you know, used to be you had a specific mission. Let's say you'd have SEALs based in uh, Virginia Beach. They deploy, do their mission, they come back, and they've had their families. They've basically been used like a conventional. Um, force in the sense that they're constantly there doing hundreds of missions just in those two places 
you know, let alone the 147 countries they operated in in, in, uh, in 2015. And they're stretched thin. They don't have a mission. They have tepid rules of engagement. Shouldn't we be concerned about the SOCOM community, the way they're being used? Um, you know, it's not like we have a disagreement over foreign policy. We don't know where we're headed in the abstract. We have men on the ground while we don't have a clear mission. Absolutely. And, and we have uh, these special operators who are dying uh, in, in these uh, missions. It's, uh, as uh, we were talking about the other day, we have some of these special op teams who are on their ninth, tenth, even more deployment. And, and, that's, uh, and these, these guys, these trained assets, are leaving in droves. You know, uh, here back several years ago, uh, there were articles that came out, even in the Washington Post, about the fact that uh, the special operations were basically being used by Obama with the help of um, John Brennan, the now CIA director, used to be counterterrorism uh, advisor to, to Obama, um, as basically their, their private army. You know, and these guys would get sent out on these missions and... Uh, sometimes guys would, would get killed, guys get injured, um, with really no, um, no end game. I, I mean, uh, you, you kill these guys and another one pops up, and we've never really addressed the root issues that allows for, uh, for, for them to replenish their, their leadership. I mean, um, I, as I was talking about earlier, uh, at the end of the Bush administration, it, after the surge, uh, the Islamic State in Iraq, Zarqawi's group, have been whittled down to 30 members. Mm. And, that, and that's now the Islamic State uh, of Iraq and Syria, the Islamic State. Uh, now, and, and, and they control a vast swath of territory. And, I mean, they're still, we're, we're hearing a lot of news that, that, that they're losing a lot of ground. Uh, the battle in Fallujah, in Iraq, and... Um, north central uh, Syria, you know, north of Raqqa, but they're still doing offensives uh, north of Aleppo. I mean, so you know, and, I and think ISIS gaining? is going to return. But their their loss is who's gain. I mean, that's the thing in Fallujah. I mean, it's the Iranian exactly. militias. So I, I mean, that that's that's what really bothers me. I think a lot of people don't realize when they say, "Oh, there's no one on the ground." There are people on the ground, and and certainly special ops are very important in the war on terror. Um, they're exactly who we should be using, but he's using them like a standing army that's perpetually there, perpetually on missions. You know, I'm thinking now. You have on the one hand in Afghanistan and Iraq, they're they're kind of serving uh, <laughs> the interests of Iran because that's the administration's policy. In Afghanistan, I mean, they're serving the the Afghani government. And they're aware of every operation that our guys are doing. They're constrained by these rules of engagement. Um, and, you know, I, I believe their lives are in danger. I mean, of course, their lives are always in danger, but in, in particular because the Afghani government, can we trust them to know all this intelligence? Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to Extortion 17, uh, you know, August uh, to 2011, when we lost almost 30 operators, a number of uh, SEAL Team 6 members, the worst, uh, the worst day we've ever had. Um, in, in, in SOCOM's history. Again, you think of the rangers that, that took the cliffs above Omaha Beach, which was the gateway to Normandy and which was the gateway to taking back Europe. We lost about 100 rangers, and, and, but, but that, that led to something. I, I just My heart goes out to these people 
um, that either have no mission or they're often helping our enemies. What you know? What can be done about that? What you know? Starting with Afghanistan, where do you think we could right the ship to properly use them, properly utilize their their strengths, and ensure that they're not being depleted um, and burned out? Well, I I, I think we're extremely limited uh, since we've pulled out our troops in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, whoever is president come January twentieth. Uh, really isn't going to have many options. Um, there's not much that we can affect. And, and Dana, this goes back to the fact that we've not been able to, to define the enemy. It really does come back to that. You know, I think of the, the Afghan uh, Air Force colonel who gunned down uh, our, our U.S. Air Force um, officers in the Afghan Air Force headquarters. Uh, here back several years ago, uh, probably it's the worst green on blue incident that we've seen since 9-11. And, uh, you know, everybody knew this? Uh, this was probably four years ago. Um, and again, it, it didn't get much, uh, much, uh, attention at the time, but I mean, here you had an Afghan air force colonel, uh, who worked at the Afghan and, and he comes into a conference room and guns down, uh, a bunch of uh, U.S. Air Force officers. Uh, I think there were nine killed uh, in that battle. And uh, I, I've read through both of the AR-15 uh, reports. The first one was was so laughable um, with the Pentagon trying to cover this up that they had to do another one. Um, and you know, and I've interviewed some of the people who were there that day. And uh, you know, the inability to say, hey, wait a second, this guy is praising the Taliban, uh, this Afghan colonel who's supposed to be our ally. And he's praising the Taliban. He worked for the Taliban uh, before the U.S. arrived in late 2001. Um, and, and he ends up killing uh, Americans, and virtually nothing was done. And it turns out that there was, you know, that there was higher involvement of Afghan officials. So we aren't able to tell good guys from bad guys, which gets us to the issue uh, that you raised earlier of immigration. You know, you know how, how are we able to tell good Syrians from bad Syrians? Sure, and the good, uh, because the good Afghanis from the bad ones, like you're saying. Or, or you know, the, the, the Iraqis who helped us versus uh, the Iraqis, like the two guys who were arrested in Bowling Green, Kentucky, uh, the two Iraqi refugees, um, who, who had been involved in setting IEDs to kill Americans and, and were plotting for their terror attacks. And, and they, were, uh, these, the they were living in Bowling Green, Kentucky. You just remind me also another interesting thing in Afghanistan. A big dynamic there is you have these village warlords or you'll have individuals that they'll be working with the Taliban. And then if American forces kind of went out in a given region, they'll work for us. They, they work for the highest bidder, but you know, at heart, they, they are you know, firm adherence to Sharia, you bring them over, maybe they're not such a problem, but their kids are a problem. And we have no way of knowing that. Um, you know, we're, we're running out of time here. It's funny. I, I wanted to discuss with you the fall of Africa, but I think we're going to have to make that its own, uh, its own episode. Um, but just real quick, are you hearing any noise about sending more troops to Libya or are they already there? Well, uh, we, we do have special operators on the ground in Libya. I mean, that's been reported. Um, and, and they've been received with 
you know, uh, mixed uh, response. In one case, they, they landed and ended up having to leave again uh, because the militia that uh, was uh, that controlled the airport when they landed, uh, you know, didn't didn't welcome them. Uh, so so we have special operators in Libya, but but again, you know, we have the U.S. backed government in Tobruk, uh, which now you have the Obama administration sanctioning these democratically elected officials because we're trying to impose this government of national uh, uh, unity. Uh, the U.S., the EU, and the U.N., uh, which is con- entirely unelected, and we're trying to impose this government. So, so we have two U.S.-recognized governments uh, in, in, in Libya, um, and, and there's no strategy behind it. I mean, oh, why are we doing this? You know, who are we supporting? Nobody knows. And that gets that opens the whole Benghazi candle. Wow, wow, we got it. Yeah, we're we're running out of time. It's really great to have you, Patrick. Wow, this went by too fast. Would you be able to come back again? We got to discuss this, uh, the fall of Africa. Um, thanks so much for all you do. Thanks, Daniel. Take care. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Patrick Poole. What a knowledgeable guy. Um, you know, again, we couldn't fit in the entire Middle East in in one podcast here. We're already over time here. Um, but but th- there you have it. You think back seventy two years ago when our soldiers knew that we that that their military leadership, their civilian leadership, had their back. That you know they might make mistakes, they might take some casualties, but it will all be worth it. It will all be towards an ultimate mission. Here we have, you know, I, I think everyone listening here, all, you know, conservatives understand that Obama sides with our enemies. He has no mission. He has no strategic interests in mind. But I think what people don't realize is how many guys, how many of our best men, the special ops in particular, are on the ground in all these countries while we have no mission and they're put through a meat grinder. Um, Meanwhile, our guys don't care. Um, We have the National Defense Authorization Bill, and I can't even find any members of the Senate to to push some of this and to put some limitations on and to at least hold some hearings into what is going on in these countries to make sure that the interests of our troops are put for first, just like we did 72 years ago. That would be the best way to honor our boys of Omaha Beach. We're out of time. Thanks for listening. As, as always, we're going to have an update later in this week on some of the foreign policy defense-oriented stuff. Thanks for listening, folks. Until next time, this is The Conservative Conscience. Conscience.